throughout Matthew's Gospel, as we've been studying studying it these past couple of years, we have seen that part of its structure is that there is a se- there are a series of Jesus' discourses, lengthy sayings and instructions that he gave. The first is the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 to 7. And then we've seen recently the woes in chapter 23. What we come to now in chapters 24 and 25 is the final discourse in Matthew's Gospel. And it's come to be known, firstly, as the Olivet Discourse, because we see from verse 3 that Jesus spoke these words on the Mount of Olives. But it's also come to be known as the apocalyptic discourse because the things that Jesus speaks of here concern the end times. The reality we must face is that this world is going to come to an end. Time and history are going to come to an end. Our own lives are going to come to an end. And then for each of us, there is eternity to be reckoned with. And arguably, no part of Jesus' teaching in any of the four Gospels has caused as much controversy as this discourse. But as Jesus actually tells us early on in these verses, controversy is to be expected in the church right up until his return. And so I hope as we we study this next section of Matthew, we may not agree with each other on every point in its interpretation. It would be very unlikely if we did, but I hope it will encourage healthy discussion amongst ourselves. And I hope we will also see there is, there is much we can learn and put into practice in our own lives as we make ourselves ready for that day, which we do not know when, when the Lord Jesus will appear. So in chapter 23, having condemned the religious leaders with the various woes, and then latterly where we read, having lamented over Jerusalem's unbelief at the, at the end of the chapter, We're told in verse 1 of chapter 24 that Jesus departs from the temple. The Son of God has stood within the temple courts, but the people would not listen to him. And so his departure here is an act of judgment. And it's very reminiscent of God's glory departing the temple in the Old Testament because of Israel's sins, as Ezekiel saw in his vision in chapter 10. You see, Christ only passes by for a time. He came throughout Judea and Galilee. He came to Jerusalem. He came to the the religious leaders in, in the very temple. And he taught the words of life. He came to that generation, but only for a time. And he comes to every generation, only for a time. And if you spurn his offers too often, 
he will depart and be silent. In chapter 23, we may think Jesus was being very harsh as he condemned the Pharisees on various points. You may think that was a hard day for the religious leaders. That wasn't a hard day. That was a day of mercy. That was a day of grace for them. When the Son of God pointed out their errors, showed them their hypocrisy and their shallowness, and showed them that true life was to be found in him. But no, they rejected him. They stood face to face with him. He passed by, but they would not take hold of him. And every time you hear the word of God preached, the Son of God passes by. Every time he is offered to you, he passes by. How many offers have you received in your life already? How many unbeliever have you rejected? You don't know when the last offer will be made and then the door will be shut forever. So while it is today, come to Jesus Christ, the only one who can give everlasting life. So it's a serious thing going on here as Jesus departs the temple. Many of these people won't hear from him again until they are summoned before his great throne of judgment. But it seems that Jesus' disciples haven't quite grasped the seriousness of the matter. Because as Jesus departs the temple in judgment, they're keen to show Jesus the buildings. They want to show Jesus the outbuildings and the outer courts of the temple. Now, undoubtedly, the temple was a huge, beautiful structure. What's the most magnificent building you've ever seen in your life? It's probably nothing compared to the size and the grandeur of the temple. The temple had been built by Solomon hundreds of years before. It had been destroyed. It was rebuilt by under leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah. And then it was rebuilt by Herod the Great more recently in Israel's history. A grand building. But it matters not what's on the outside, but what's on the inside. You can have grand buildings and other things in religion that are pleasing to the senses. Be it the eyes with the, the ornate decoration. Be it the ears with, with the catchy music. Be it the nose with the smells of the incense. And there's much of that still all going on in the church today. You can have all that on the outside, but still within have a spirit of unbelief and deadness. And sadly, that exists across the church today as well. And as the disciples are transfixed on the beauty of the building, Jesus is lamenting over the hardened spiritual state of the worshippers who are within Many were in awe of the temple, but had no thought of God who dwelt in. Just perhaps arguous today, many can be too focused on church buildings. They have their place, they are a witness in themselves. But if we're focused on them with no concern 
for the God who is meant to be worshipped within them, there is something far wrong. And so as the disciples try to get Jesus to look up and to take it in and to see it, he says to them in verse 2, no, do you not see what's really going on? See beyond the building. Look at what's going on in the hearts of these people. And so Jesus tells them in verse 2 that it's all literally going to come crashing down. And it did so just under 40 years after Jesus spoke this prophecy. In the year AD 70, a very significant year in history, in response to the Jewish revolt, the Roman general Titus took the Roman army into Jerusalem and sacked the place and raised the temple to the ground. And the Jewish historian Josephus has an account of that. The temple was destroyed because God was finished with it. You see, one greater than the temple had stood among them. The temple was only a type and a shadow, the dwelling place of God. But Christ had come, the one who is God himself. And now such a building is not required because God, by his spirit, dwells in the heart of every believer. the one that stood among them had been rejected in the very temple courts soon that building would be no more I hope our religion is much deeper than a building or a movement or anything else outward but that it's focused on Jesus Christ himself now of course hearing such a prediction by Jesus would have naturally brought some shock to the disciples to hear that such a huge grand building was going to come crashing down seemed to seem to discomfort them a little bit and so in verse 3 we see that they ask him when all this would take place now verse 3 i believe is actually the key to understanding the complexities of Matthew chapter 24. Because see, what did the disciples do in verse 3? They asked Jesus a two-part question. And so as we are working our way through chapters 24 and 25, we have to understand this, that Jesus is answering a two-part question. And he doesn't necessarily answer it part one and then part two. So the question, the first question the first part of the question they ask is, when will these things be? Meaning, when will the destruction of the temple take place? And then the second question they ask is, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age, which I think we can take as being one event? What will be the sign of your coming? When will Christ's second coming take place, bringing an end to time and history. Perhaps at this point the disciples weren't even aware that they were asking a two-part question. Perhaps they expected the destruction of the temple to signify the end of time and they thought it would all happen together. But what we see from history and from Jesus' answer is that they're two separate events. And the first event has happened. The temple has been destroyed. It was destroyed in the year A.D. 
70. The second event is still to happen. Christ returning. There are different events. One has happened, one hasn't. And so at different points in his answer, Jesus is describing two different events. But ultimately he is describing the events leading up to his return. That period from his resurrection until he returns again to earth, which hasn't happened yet. And one event during that period, during that time frame, was going to be the destruction of the temple. And that in itself was a foretaste of the final judgment. And so, in verse 4, Jesus' answer begins with a warning. Take heed that no one deceives you. Because in those days there was going to be much deception. And there still is much deception out there. There is much false, dangerous teaching out there on every subject. Including regarding the end times and prophecies. And I'm sure we've all noticed that people try to read every world event into the following verses and verses like them. And arguably the COVID pandemic has exacerbated that and people have tried to, to fit COVID in to the Bible prophecies and consider it to be one event marking the end of time. I'm sure we've all heard such things in the past few years. But actually Jesus makes it clear in verse 6 that these great world events, they're not signs showing it's near the end of the age. These great world events have always been happening. They're not showing the end. Jesus says they're showing the beginning. Verse 8, all these are the beginning of sorrows. You see, everything listed in verses 6 and 7, they've been there since Christ's resurrection and before that. And these things continue to this day. You see, the first century was the beginning of the last days. That period between Christ's resurrection and his return. That was the beginning and Christ's disciples whom he's speaking to here, they were living in it. That marked the beginning of the sorrows, the birth pangs of the Messiah's second coming. They began then in the first century. And we're still in these last days. And these birth pangs still take place. The same pangs still happen. The wars, the rumours of wars, the famines, the pestilences. If you're going to fit COVID into any verse in scripture, I think verse 7 is the right one to do it. Another plague that has been happening since the beginning, since the fall, that has been happening since the first century as part of the birth pangs leading to the Messiah's return. Earthquakes. It's happened throughout the world for millennia. It's still happening throughout the world today. They're not showing that the end is nigh. So what does Jesus say about them? What does he tell us to do in response to these things that we see so regularly on the news? Verse 6, he says, don't be troubled. We don't need to fear these things 
as believers. We don't need to fear what's going on in our world. God is in control. He is working out his sovereign purposes in all these things. All these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. So see that you are not troubled. They're not signs because these things are are always going to be there right up to Christ's return. And they always have been there these past 2,000 years. So Jesus is saying, do not think the end has come because you see these things. So it's so important that as believers we don't get bogged down in signs like this. And verse 5 shows us if you're too focused on signs, you'll be deceived by counterfeit signs. In the first century, there were many people who came saying, I am the Messiah. Many who came saying, I am the Christ. And there's records of them. And you know, there's still people throughout the world today claiming to be Jesus. People claiming they have seen him, that he's come and spoken especially to them. And that people should follow them because of it. There are sects and cults throughout our world, such as the Jehovah's Witnesses, such as the Mormons, who say he's come back and he's given special messages to certain individuals. Jesus is teaching us here not to be deceived. And he's saying we can't know the exact times. What Jesus is not doing here is giving us a date for our diaries when he is going to return. What he's telling us to do is be ready. It will come as a thief in the night. It will come unexpected as he will tell us later on in the chapter. But he doesn't just tell us what's going to be going on in the world up until his return. He tells us what's going to be going on in the church up until his return as well. So we've seen what will happen in the world in verses 6 to 8, but then in verses 9 to 12, we see what's going to be happening in the church. There'll be great catastrophes in the world, but also there's going to be catastrophe in the church. Verse 9 tells us that the world will turn on the church. And Jesus will go on to tell his disciples this in the upper room. If the world hates you, know that it hated me first. There will be persecution. There will be martyrdom as Satan uses men's unbelief to try and stamp out the gospel. And the call to come and have life in Jesus Christ is a call to renounce this world. If you're going to be a Christian, you have to be prepared to be hated. That doesn't mean we act in a way to bring contempt by unnecessarily provoking people. But it means that the offence they will have is the offence of the cross. And actually for those that Jesus is speaking to, Immediately, his disciples, church history tells us that all of the apostles were martyred except John. So there will be tribulation, there will be death as people claim Christ. You'll be hated by all nations. 
But if you're a Christian, to be hated by this world doesn't utterly matter because it's not your home. And the people that hate you, they're dying. What does it matter? What matters is what God thinks of you. Not friends or family or colleagues or anyone else ultimately. But where do you stand before God? That's what matters and that's what will determine where you spend eternity. What we see in verse 10 is that this persecution will be a sifting time. It will weed out those who aren't genuine. For some people, they'll decide, nope, I can't go on with this. The suffering and the shame that they come under, it won't be worth it to some of them. And they will fall away. They will say, right, I'm done with Christianity. I'm not going to be a Christian anymore. But they weren't really in the first place. And actually... They will turn as well. They'll turn and be just like the world. Then many will be offended and will betray one another and will hate one another. For the love of this present world, people will renounce the faith and then go on to betray believers. They will turn on them. They will hate them. And that's one of the Certainly the trials that we sometimes face as Christians is that those we thought were in the faith turn out not to have been. Those that we thought loved us turn on us and turn against us. And in these days, many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Verse 11. There will be much false teaching in the professing church. And there's plenty of that today as well. Where the Bible and all its doctrine are despised. Where men think that they know better than what God has said in his words. So there will be spiritual calamity within the church. Apostasy, treachery, hatred, heresy. Remember on Thursday evening we were thinking about the nature of the church and how the church in heaven is known as the church triumphant but the church on earth now is known as the church militant. There's opposition and persecution from without but she's also fighting against heresy and betrayal from within. And we lament when this happens in our day but it's happened in every day. We lament, but we shouldn't be surprised. It's part of the birth pangs of Christ's coming. We also see in verse 12, there'll be days of increasing sin. Lawlessness will abound. And because of that, the love of many will grow cold. We shouldn't be surprised really at what we see in our nation today. We shouldn't be surprised by what parts of the church change their view on and begin to say is okay. Abominations are to be expected in the world. 
but acceptance of these abominations sadly can be expected in the church as well. The lawlessness will abound. And the love of many will grow cold. People will have a lack of love for God and for others. The Apostle Paul warned Timothy of the same things in 2 Timothy chapter 3. But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. And from such people turn away. Friends, this is the world we live in. This is the world we are called to endure in. And we're part of a worldwide church where some parts of that church will sadly conform to the world. But Jesus doesn't leave it there. He's been honest and upfront with us about what we will face in following him as we long for his appearing. But he gives us encouragement in verses 13 and 14. You see, in it all, verse 13 tells us that the Lord's people will be kept and they will endure to the end. Those who truly love Jesus Christ and follow him with their whole hearts, they won't be lost. They won't be swept away with false doctrines and heresies. They won't be caught up in sins that damn them. They will be able to keep going, swimming against the tide of the world. With every arrow and fiery dart from the evil one, they will be enabled to resist and to keep going in the strength of Christ, looking to him. You see, true faith perseveres, and that's evidence that is true faith. Evidence that you're a Christian is that you keep going as a Christian. You see, true Christians die Christians. True Christians die with Christ's name on their lips if they have the mental capacity to do so. And Jesus has said so already back in chapter 10, verse 22. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end will be saved. Likewise, in Colossians chapter 1, Paul writes there to encourage the church. And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he is reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you heard. And it's so important that we realise this as believers, that we must keep going, that the writer to the Hebrews gives a similar instruction to the saints there as well. Hebrews chapter 3. Verse 5, 
And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of hope firm to the end. So we see that during these millennia, these thousands of years of turmoil in the world, of political and social turmoil, but also in these years of spiritual turmoil in the church, the Lord's people will be kept by him. For no one truly united to Christ by faith can be lost. He will lose none of his sheep. No power can separate us from his love or snatch us from his hand if we are truly in him. And so during all this, the Lord's people will be kept. But what will also be taking place? Verse 14. The gospel is going to spread to all nations. In the midst of catastrophe and calamity throughout the world, with all these natural disasters and man-made wars, with all the killing and brutality, and even as the church isn't as she should be, God's going to work through all that so that every nation is going to hear of his saving grace. This will also be a time of worldwide evangelization right up to Christ's return. The great commission that he gave to his disciples will be fulfilled where the gospel will be taken to all nations. And that's already been hinted at and taught throughout the Old Testament as we see various individuals who were not truly of Israel coming into Israel. Even in Matthew's genealogy, he lists some of the Gentile women like Rahab and Ruth and others. Matthew lists the Magi being the first to come and see Jesus, those from a far eastern land. Matthew mentions the healing of the Roman centurion's servant, not a Jew, and the Canaanite woman's daughter, not a Jew. So in AD 70, this, the physical temple was destroyed. But friends, ever since our Lord rose from the dead and gave that great commission to his disciples, his spiritual temple has been being built and continues to be built this day and includes will include people from every nation of the world. So what is the call for believers in these days? Well, I think firstly in our day it's important to say that, that we don't get bogged down trying to predict Christ's return and predict the end times and try and interpret everything that happens. And people get distracted with these things. They get more into these things and they they drift from the basics, like attending the means of grace, being involved in church fellowship, as they become more insular rather than being more outwards with the gospel, as verse 14 tells us to be. So it's not our job to try and pinpoint the exact time of Christ's return. 
Now, of course, we are to try and understand every part of Scripture as best we can, including these prophecies. But there's going to be a limit to that. What we have to do is focus on being ready. Because Jesus told us he is coming back. The prophets of old said he would come a first time to save. He's done that. It was all true about him. So you can trust the prophecies that say he's coming back to judge. We must be ready. In some jobs, people are required to be on call. They're required to be on standby. So that as soon as their telephone or their pager goes, they're ready to respond to the situation. And that's the call to us as Christians as well. We have to be those who are on call. Are you ready tonight? If the Lord returns or if he calls you home, if it's to be your last night on this earth, are you ready to stand before him? Are your bags packed? Do you have a righteousness in him or are you still clinging on to your own righteousness and thinking you'll do enough to get right with God? That you've lived a good enough life? You haven't. Are you looking away from yourself and looking to Jesus as the only one who can pardon your sins and can, can make you right with God? So firstly, we have to be ready. And we see from these verses there will be much deception. And so secondly, we have to be students of the word. We have to diligently and prayerfully study the word, asking the spirit to give us true understanding so that we won't be deceived. Because there are many that are deceived today. And many will be taken in by the world and their love will grow cold. So thirdly, we have to strive to keep close to God so that our love won't grow cold. Asking him to inflame our hearts, feeding ourselves on his word, attending the means of grace, being found in obedience, that he would keep our hearts and keep us close to him. And as the love of many grows cold, let us focus on loving the brethren, loving our neighbours, doing good to those of the household of faith, as we were thinking this morning. And let us be seeking God's grace and strength to endure in the race, because it's only those who endure to the end will be saved. Let us pray to be kept, and let us strive to Remove anything from our lives that's going to be a barrier to our Christian walk and our spiritual growth. And finally, verse 14 tells us what else we should be doing in these days. And that is playing our part however we can to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Whether that's sharing the good news with a neighbour, whether that's giving money towards a cause in another country, we've all been given the great commission. The Apostle Peter, in his second epistle, Peter, who was there and heard those words in Matthew 24 directly from Jesus, 
Listen to what he says in chapter 3, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless. So friends, until that day, there is work to do. The night comes when no man can work. So let us seek to work now for the Lord. And may we cry, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. Let us pray. Indeed, O Lord, this is our cry that we would behold you, our beloved, to see you coming on the clouds in glory, and that as your people we would be ready. Oh, that we would not be deceived. If there be any error within us, in our thinking, in our living. Show us, O Lord, how we can be more obedient to you and more within your will. Help us to trust you in the midst of everything going on in this world, to know that you have good and gracious purposes in it all to build your church. May we not lose heart, may we not be dismayed, but may our hope be set firmly upon the rock. We pray then that you would help us to live godly lives that are an example to others and that they would see from us the beauty of a life lived for the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, and that you would use us to convict people of sin, of judgment, of the world to come, and of your existence and power and glory. We ask, therefore, that you would prepare each of our hearts and keep us prepared each day for that day when we will finally meet you and see your gracious face. Please bless this food to us this night. Bless our time of fellowship. We ask all in your name. Amen. <coughs> Let us conclude by singing in the Scottish Psalter in Psalm 66. Let us sing verses 1 to 5. And then down at the stanza mark, verses 8 and 9. Psalm 66 in the Scottish Psalter, we sing verses 1 to 5 and then also verses 8 and 9. All lands to God in joyful sounds, aloft your voices raise. Sing forth the honour of his name and glorious make his praise. Say unto God, how terrible in all thy works art thou, through thy great power. Thy foes to thee shall be constrained to bow. All on the earth shall worship thee. They shall thy praise proclaim in songs. They shall sing cheerfully unto thy holy name. Come and the works that God hath wrought with admiration see. 
and his working to the sons of men most terrible is he. And then at verse 8, Ye people, bless our God, aloud the voice speak of his praise, our soul in life who safe preserves, our foot from sliding stays. Let us stand and sing these verses to the praise and glory of our God. Oh, Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. <laughs>